we are in a series. Welcome. If you're new to our congregation, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are starting a new series on humility. Woohoo! Humility! <laughs> uh, most people don't go to church going, man, I just want to be more humble. I just want to be more humble. But here we are. Over the next nine weeks, we're going to be focusing on the theme of humility. When I was on sabbatical last year, I thought I was reading through some humility stuff, and I thought this would be a great series to take us through Lent. And I want to say from the onset that this series is going to be good for your soul, but it's going to be painful for your false self. I want to just tell you that up front. It's going to be good for your soul. But there's going to be parts of your false self, that the pride, the ego, your flesh, that's going to experience some pain over the next. Uh, so don't, don't come back, come back. Don't let that get, get you scared. Keep coming back. But uh, God wants to do some stuff in us. And I think uh, this, ser- this series has the potential to heal marriages and parenting relationships and how you deal with criticism and conflict and how we deal with what's happening in the world, uh, this is going to really help us over the next couple of months. When we look at humility, there's so many different definitions of humility, but what we're going to do over the next nine weeks is identify uh, humble declarations. And so every week there will be a a declaration that uh, I want you to hold on to throughout the course of the week. And the declaration for this sermon is essentially this. There is nothing beneath me. That's what humility says. Humility says, there is nothing beneath me. Humility also says, there is no one beneath me. And my hope is that this week, as we are following Jesus, as we're wrestling with what God wants to do in our souls, that that declaration would begin to be true for us. There's nothing beneath me, and there's no one beneath me. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul gives some words about humility. You can follow with me on the screen, beginning in verse number 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Somebody say amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the reigning Lord, the one who is Lord over all things, and now through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, form humility in our souls. May we be a humble people as we live following you in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. I love the sayings of the Desert Fathers. For the past 20 years, I've spent much time reading the theology and the sayings of these men and women who in the first few hundred years after the church was birthed, would go into the desert to spend time with God in silence, to spend time with God in prayer, to spend time with God in solitude. And in that time with God in prayer and in solitude and in silence, they would learn many lessons about humility. 
And there's one story of the desert father tradition that comes to mind that I really love about humility. And it goes like this. You can follow with me on the screen. It says, the devil appeared to a brother in disguise of an angel of light. The devil said, I am the archangel Gabriel, and I was sent to you. And the brother responded, make sure you were not sent to somebody else, for I am not worthy to see an angel. And the devil, seeing the humility of this brother, immediately disappeared. Now, I love this story, and the point of the story is very simple. And that is, if your life is marked by humility, you will live free from the power of the evil one. If your life is marked by humility, you will live free from much of the pressures of the world. There's something beautiful about humility. And yet, the road to humility is very difficult. It's one of those virtues that's never gained by seeking it. And to think that we have it means that we don't. It's funny how you can say certain things about yourself and people will applaud you. You could say, you know, I'm feeling more loving these days. We say, well, praise the Lord. You say, I'm feeling more generous these days. Well, God is working in you. You say, I'm feeling more forgiving these days. You say, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that. I'm feeling more joyful these days. We're all applaud that. But if you walk up to someone and say, you know, I'm feeling really humble these days. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. If you say, you know, humility is really flowing through my life these days. We go, "Mm, I, I don't know. Because the moment you think you're humble is actually the moment pride comes in. This is the paradox of humility. That when we think we have it, we actually don't. And so we are called to grow in humility. This is core to the Christian journey, core to the Christian faith. And it's one of the more staggering ideas in Christianity that God is the most humble being. We tend to think of God as strong in the terms of God's strength, God moving mountains and such. But what makes God the strongest being is very simply this. God is strongest because God is most humble. He's the most humble being in the universe. And we look no further than Jesus to confirm this. When Paul writes to the Philippian church, he's writing to a church that he's actually very happy with. He's very pleased with them. This is not always the case when Paul writes to a church. When Paul writes to many churches, he's upset with them. When Paul writes to some churches, he is exasperated with them. When Paul writes to some churches, he's annoyed, he's perturbed, he's disappointed because of their behavior. But when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he's actually uh, very happy. One of the key words that comes up over and over in the book of Philippians is the word joy. The word rejoice. It's a letter about Paul rejoicing and calling Christians to rejoice. When Paul writes this letter to the church, he's actually in jail. But this church has sent someone his way to support him as he's in jail. And so he receives this support from this generous congregation. And so he writes back to this generous congregation, letting them know, I am so joyful because of your love. And yet, even though they are a generous people, even though they are a loving people, even though they are a people who know how to rejoice, Paul still knows they still have some issues. And that's good for all of us to remember. That no matter how good you are in one area of your life, we all have work to do. And so Paul writes to this church. He's excited about them. He, he appreciates their love. He sees their generosity. And yet Paul says, there's some challenges within the local congregation that I need to speak to. In particular, Paul was afraid about the division that he was hearing about, the disunity that was marking the church. And the reason I know that uh, Paul is concerned about this is because what happens in verse 1 through 5. We only see what happens in Paul's side of the conversation. We don't know what's actually happening in the church per se directly. But it's almost as if 
You've ever been on the subway and you hear someone on a, on a call or walking in the street and you just hear one side of the conversation and you hear it because the person's talking so loud? I know none of you are like that, but there's some people that are just talking so loud on the train or in the street that you know exactly what's happening in the conversation, even though you don't hear the other end of the conversation. That's like what the Paul's letters are. You don't know exactly what's happening in the church, but because of what Paul writes about, you get a sense as to what's happening on the other end of the phone. And so Paul lets us know there is some disunity, some division that's coming up, and we know this because the word unity or the words about unity come up six times in the first four verses. In chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, look at all the times that unity comes up. He talks about being united with Christ, common sharing in the spirit, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, being one in mind. Paul is saying, you guys are in danger of of disunity, danger of division. And that's God's word to us as New Life Fellowship Church as well. That no matter how well our church is doing, we are always, as it were, uh, on the the bridge here, on on the ledge here, just being on the brink of any kind of disunity coming in. And when you look at what's happening in the world and all the craziness out there, that has a way of coming into our church as well. And so Paul's word to the Philippian church is Paul's word to us as well. Be careful about disunity. Be careful about division. Now, it's important to say that when Paul talks about unity, unity does not mean uniformity. And it's important to say that. To be united doesn't mean we're going to see everything the same. To be united doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. To be united doesn't mean that we are going to all vote the same way on the same particular issues. To be united does not mean that we're all going to have the same opinion about social issues or just issues in particular. When Paul talks about unity, he's not talking about uniformity. And I know that because all throughout the New Testament, we see Christians disagreeing with each other. And yet, even though you might have a different opinion, Paul says you can still preserve unity. Now, the way you preserve unity is that we have the same mind, the same heart as it pertains to one thing. And that one thing is this. Our minds and our hearts are united in that we are setting our hearts and eyes on Jesus. And not only are we setting our eyes and hearts on Jesus Christ... We are asking Jesus to shape us and shape our lives with his humble love. Have the mind of Christ, Paul says. And the mind of Christ in this passage is a mind that's set on humility. Now, Paul has to say this because... There's some stuff happening in the church, and Paul captures kind of the drama that's happening in the church with two phrases, and the two phrases are selfish ambition and vain conceit. Paul knows that selfish ambition and vain conceit are starting to infiltrate the church, and he's mindful of this. And that word, those two phrases, selfish ambition and vain conceit, are two words Uh, that we need to be mindful of as well. Because it's essentially saying selfish ambition and vain conceit is I see the world and I relate to the world as the center of it. That I'm the center of this world and everyone revolves around me. Why don't you think like how I think? Why don't you believe how I believe? It's self-seeking. We are the centered ones in this. And so selfish ambition says everything is centered around me and my interests. And this happens in big ways and in small ways. We are the center of attention. Let me give an innocent example. Suppose you are in a group photo. And the first time you see the picture, where do you look? You look for yourself. Amen. And 
If you look good in the picture, do you like the picture? Yes, you do. If you're the only one who looks good in the picture, do you like the picture? Yes, you do. Everyone could have spinach in their teeth, their eyes are closed, looking the wrong way. But if you look good, you're going, this is a good picture. This is, let's frame this. This is a really good picture. And that's a very innocent way. I'm the chief among sinners here, but it's an innocent way of vain conceits where everything revolves around us. And instead of that, Paul says, instead of living in this kind of way, hear the words, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, it's important that I say, this does not mean that your interests are not important. This does not mean that your goals and dreams for your life are not important. This does not mean that you can't have ambition for your life. Paul's talking about selfish ambition. But we have to know that when Paul says this, he's writing to a body. He's not writing to individuals. He's writing to a body, a body of believers. And it's important because what Paul is saying essentially in this think, value others above yourself is essentially this. As the body of Christ, if we live this way, If you live valuing others and their interests above yourself, and if you are part of a family, part of a church, part of a marriage, part of a network of friendships that do that, your interests will be met. If you seek after the interests of others and it's done in a way where we're all in this together, your interests will ultimately be met. Remember, he's not writing to individuals. We have a very individualistic way of reading the Bible. He's writing to a community. So to New Life Fellowship, he's saying to all of you, to all of you, if he was writing to us, he says, value other people's interests above your own. Because if we do that as a community, our needs will ultimately be met. Our interests will ultimately be be realized. And it's as if we're saying, you've been a, you know, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. That's, that's essentially value others above yourself. And ultimately, your needs and interests will be met. Now, I realize in a, in a working environment, it's a little more complicated than that. And we have to discern God's will here. But he's writing to a local body of people. And if we can get this here, it'll change the way we relate to each other. And so Paul... He's he's trying to communicate to his people, uh, be of one mind, value others above yourselves. And it seems you still don't get it. And so he goes to verse 6 and says, now I'm going to drop a bombshell. Let's look at Jesus. I'm going to drop a bombshell about what God is like. And so in verse 6, he transitions and goes into what's known as the Christ hymn. When Paul writes these words, scholars and tradition says that this was a hymn that was already part of the church before Paul wrote these words. They were already singing these words and reciting these words. And so Paul writes these words that they would know about. And in verse 6, we see that what Paul is getting at is humility is foundational in the story of Jesus. And so he says in in verse 6, Jesus being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Paul is saying, first of all, if you want to talk about humility, you can't talk about humility without talking about God first. And what is God like? Who is God like? God is like Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look nowhere else. We look to Jesus because Jesus is God. And the shock of Christianity is that God reveals himself to be a servant. The very essence of God is to serve. That word being there in the Greek language can be translated in two ways. The first way it can be translated is with the word although. Although he is in very nature God, he became a servant. 
and what you can translate it by, by means of contrast. Although he is this, he became that. That's one way of translating that word being. But there's another way of translating that word being, not with the word although, but with the word because. And it makes a big difference here. Because he is God, he became a servant. See how scandalous that is? Not because he is God, he became a servant. In the first end, it is, it is humility is the opposite of divinity. In the second, it says humility is the expression of divinity. That to be humble is to somehow participate in the life of God. And so Jesus is to redefine our image of what God is. Now, know what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say God serves. He says God is a servant. And there's a difference. Because you can serve and not be a servant. You can serve in such a way that you decide who gets served and who doesn't get served. You can say, you've been nice to me. I'm going to serve you. You complimented me. I'm going to serve you. You blessed me. I'm going to serve you. And we control who gets served. Amen. Uh, uh, okay. And then there's another. I don't like you. I'm not serving you. I disagree with you. I'm not serving you. The very essence of God, however, is not to pick and choose who God serves. The very essence of God is that God serves everyone. God washes the feet of everyone. This is the scandal of Christianity. We see this most profoundly in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, there's a beautiful story about Jesus and his disciples. He walks into a room. He's with his disciples. And it's, it's, it's known as one of the more important stories of how the life of humility is to shape our lives. In ancient times, whenever someone went into a home, they would often have a servant who would be at the door. And when guests came in, they would get down and they would wash the feet of the guests as they came in. Remember, there were no shoes, there are no boots in this way. The, the, the ground is probably dirty, muddy, they have sandals, uh, dirty feet. And so someone would come in and a servant would clean their feet, wash their feet, and then they'd come in. Next person washed their feet and they came in. If someone could not hire a servant, it was often the first person who entered into a house that would have the task of cleaning everyone else's feet, which you could imagine a lot of people were fashionably late because of that. <laughs> and so in John 13, Jesus is with his disciples, but here's the scandal of the story. They are around the table, and no one has washed anyone's feet. They're around the table and everyone's feet dirty. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't stand up and say, now I'm going to demonstrate humility for you. I'm going to show you what humility looks like. No, no, no. Jesus just gets up. He grabs a basin, takes a towel, and he begins one by one to clean the feet of his disciples, the master, the teacher, the Lord of the universe comes down, washes their feet, and he washes all of their feet, even Judas's feet, the one who would betray him. Notice, he doesn't go, oh, Peter, here you go, let me hook you up here, great. Okay, John, okay, here we go, I'll hook you up here. James, okay, here you go, James, let me hook you up here. Bartholomew, okay, Bartholomew. Uh, Judas, you can clean your own feet. Uh, uh, that's just, and, and then go down the road here. That's you, that's me. I know what you're up to, brother, clean your own feet, all right? And, and, um, but it is the very nature of God to clean everyone's feet, saint or sinner, righteous or unrighteous, holy or unholy, the very nature of God. This is the scandal of Christianity, is that God washes everyone's 
feet and invites us now to be the kind of servants in the way of Jesus. Now, that story in John 13 reminded me of, of the image of the towel came to mind, and it reminded me that there are really two kinds of towels. There's two kinds of towels. You know this, yes. There are two kinds of towels. The first towel looks something like this here on the screen. It's, it, it, it's, it, it's, 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 it looks like a towel, uh, but, but it doesn't function as a towel. Um, uh, how many know what I'm talking about? Um, like, 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 it is a towel, but you better not use it as a towel, okay? It's hanging there, but if you use it, you're in trouble, okay? My grandmother used to have towels like this, uh, names embroidered on it, and, and I used to go to the bathroom and realize I really can't touch it, but my hands are, I went. So what I would do, I'd go to the back of the towel, boom, and, uh, and walk out and, and, and hide the evidence and all that there. You too, huh? Um, <laughs> and so that's one kind of towel where it looks like a towel, but you better not use it as a towel. But then there's another towel, the towel you find in the trunk of your car, the towel you find in your garage, the towel you find in some closet that you're using. It. And here's the, the, the question that came to mind is, what kind of towel am I? What kind of towel are you? A towel, we look like a servant. We dress like a servant. We carry the Bible like a servant. But you better not treat me like a servant. Who do we, we, we choose who we serve. We choose who we are, are, are nice to. What kind of towel are we? Jesus washes Judas's feet. Now, humility leads to servanthood, but humility is not just about serving. And this is what I mean. Humility is ultimately about your heart because you can serve all day long and not be humble. You can serve all day long and have your heart marked by pride. You can serve all day long and think, look how they're looking at me now. Humility is not just about the act of service. Humility is about a particular heart that God wants to form in us. And so how do we begin to flesh this out in our world? Paul looks at Jesus and says, the way that the world was healed is because of the humble, saving love of Jesus. The way that the world is forgiven is because of the humble, saving love of Jesus. The way that the world is restored is because of the humble, saving love of Jesus Christ. And out of the saving love of Jesus Christ, what does it mean to begin to flesh this out in our day-to-day? -day? And so we're going to be focusing on this over the next couple of months, but I want to focus on a few things before we take communion together that the Holy Spirit, I believe, would use to frame and form our hearts in the way of humility. A few truths about humility. The first thing that we see in this passage is that humility is a decision that we make, an ongoing decision that we make. And it's important for me to say this because we often want someone to pray humility in us. Can you pray this? I just want to be humble. Can you pray that for me? And I want to tell you something, that there's no one prayer that's going to make you humble. There's no two prayers that are going to make you humble. There's no hundred prayers that are going to make you humble. Humility is an ongoing decision that we make. How do I know? Look at Jesus. Look what the word says. It says, it, it says this about him. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death. It, humility is an ongoing decision. And what we want to pray for is for our heart to be humble. That every single day we will make a decision to be humble and, 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 and make decisions marked by humility. But humility doesn't just come like this. Humility doesn't come just because you get older. Amen? Amen. Uh, there's some 60s and 70s and 80s and 90-year-old folks that just because you get old doesn't mean you get humble. Just because you experience some form of sickness doesn't make you humble. Uh, just because you're weak doesn't make you humble. 
There are people who are, who are old and sick and proud. <laughs> and so humility is an ongoing life decision that we make. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say about humility is that humility is a letting go of entitlement. Entitlement. In verse 6, Paul says this about Jesus. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus, if there's anyone who should have been entitled, it could have been Jesus. And yet, he does not go the way of entitlement. I deserve this. And yet, how easy it is for me to go down the road of entitlement. I remember my first day as a pastor here at New Life. 12 years ago. And I came from a church. I was a pastor at a different church. And the office that I had at the other church was spacious, leather chair, mahogany wood. I mean, when I walked in, I felt like somebody. I was like, that's right. I, I am somebody. I am somebody. And then I left that church and came to, to this church. And I remember my first day. And, and Drew, many of you know Drew, who was one of our pastors back then. He was giving me a tour. And then I just asked him, so, uh, Drew, um, where's my office? Where am I going to sit? And he starts doing one of these things. Um, hmm, um. I'm like, why are you, um, uh, brother, what's the 360 about? What's the 360 about? And, uh, and, and he goes, uh, how about there? And there was like a corner behind boxes. Uh, and it didn't even look like a desk. And he goes, are you fine there? And, and I said, my first day, I sat down with stuff falling all over me. And I'm thinking, uh, what is this? I came to the wrong church. This is, a, this is a wrong church. And what was in me? Entitlement. I'm a pastor. I don't deserve this. What kind of church is this? Amen. My office is a little nicer now. It's a little nicer now. It took a while, but it's a bit nicer now. But humility means letting go of entitlement. And we'll talk about that in months to come. But thirdly, humility says, nothing and no person is beneath me. There's nothing beneath me and no person is beneath me. Now, let's... let's let, a good and simple way to measure humility is to identify the tasks that you think are beneath you. Oh, it, it, it's, a good, it's a good spiritual formation task. What are the tasks and who are the people that you think are beneath you? When I think about that question, I think about an experience, an encounter I had as an 18-year-old. I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I, I worked as a mailroom guy for a big company, stocks and bonds company. And I was already on the low end of the totem pole, low as you can get. And so one day I'm walking out, and I go to the elevator, beautiful, shiny floors, everything is immaculate, press the button, I'm waiting to go down. And as I look down, I see that there's a piece of paper on the floor. And I look at the paper and I go, I'm not picking that up. I'm already low on this organization. I'm not going lower than this. And so I just look at it. I ain't picking that up. About 30 seconds later, the CEO of the company comes, and he walks, and, and he hits the button, and he knows me, and he goes, um, hey, Rich, did you see that paper on the floor? And I go, yeah. <laughs> and he said, he, here's a guy in his mid-70s. He goes, if you see a paper on the floor, just pick it up. And he begins to, in slow motion, go down. Uh, so I'm feeling really convicted. Uh. And he picks it up and he, he throws it in the garbage. And, and that, that image stuck with me. That memory stuck with me. So much so that a few months ago, I'm walking into church on a Sunday I'm coming up the stairs, and I, I see a piece of paper on the steps. And I look at the paper, and I see it, and I go, I ain't picking that up. And I'm about to walk again there. 
can I confess this in church? Is that okay for the pastor to confess this? And then I thought for a moment of my 18-year-old self, and I think about this, 22 years later, I'm thinking about this all the time. Every time I see a piece of paper on the floor, I think about that. And I went back and I picked it up and, and I put it in the garbage. And I don't say this to go, oh, look at how rich pastor is picking paper up on the floor and everything. But I say that to say, it's an ongoing struggle for me. Where I go, that's, that's beneath me. But it's more than just a thing. It's also a who. Who's beneath you? Uh, you, you have to be able. Humility says, no, that, that, that Democrat, he's not beneath me. That, that Republican, she's not beneath me. That Muslim, he's not beneath me. That Hindu, he's not beneath me. That Buddhist, that atheist, they're not beneath me either. Because, because when Jesus goes deeper, there's nothing beneath Jesus. And when our sin goes deep, his love goes even deeper. He washes all of our feet. And he invites us to live in the same way. Humility says there is no person, nothing beneath me. Fourth, humility is really the path to freedom. When you're the, the freest person is the most humble person. In which, when you're humble, you have nothing to protect. No ego to protect. Nothing to prove. Nothing to possess. The freest person is the humblest person. Because you're, you're saying, I'm letting go of your perception of me. And I'm letting go of my perception of myself. I'm living according to God's perception of me. The humblest person is the freest person. Finally, and then we'll take the bread and the cup. Humility is about trusting God to lift us up. Look what Paul does at the end here. He says, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death. I want to tell you, as we go through this series, humility is a death. It is a dying to something. This is not pretty. This is not feel good. Um, this is a death. And yet, even though it is a death, it doesn't end in death. The story ends with newness of life. Paul does this by focusing on the word above two times in Philippians 1 through 11. The first time the word above comes up, Paul says, see others above yourselves. And this is what Christ does. He sees us above himself. He values us above his own life. He takes on our death to give us his life. He values us above his own self, but the story of Christianity doesn't end on the cross. And the story of Christianity doesn't end in a grave. Because with you, Paul, we use that same word above to talk about the ways God shifts things. Where Jesus begins by valuing us above himself. And then God, it says, the word of God says, now God has given him a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. The Christian story never ends with death. It ends with the newness of God. And so when we choose the road of humility, we are entrusting that God will lift us up. We are entrusting that we are in Christ and we will share in the resurrection and in the exaltation of Jesus Christ in God's way, not in my way. And so this same Jesus who became nothing, this same Jesus who became a servant, this same Jesus who would become obedient to death, even death on the cross, who will be raised up and be exalted. And given a name above every single name. And that's the way God works. That is, if you trust him and you're going down, he'll lift you up. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And God will exalt those who are humble. And the beauty of humility is this. Even in your going down, you are already being exalted. Because you're free. The freest people are, uh, the most exalted people are the freest people. The humblest people are the freest people. And as you go down and say later for the, your perception of me and later for the perception of myself, once you start thinking that everyone is thinking, but people aren't even thinking about you. That's the thing. Everybody's eyes are on me. Nobody's even looking at you. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're in your own head. You're in your own head. When you go down the way of humility, all of a sudden you're free. 
because you realize they weren't even looking at me in the first place. <laughs> Here we are. I was at the worship team come up. I, I, I went with Rosie on our, for our, our anniversary, and we went to the beach, and, and you know, I, I, at one point I took my shirt off, and I was like self-conscious of my body and all that there, and I'm walking around thinking, oh, they're looking at me, and I realized they're not even looking at me. They're not even looking. They don't even care who I am. Here I am thinking I'm the center of the universe, and nobody's even glancing at me. So I was free at that point. Humility says, essentially, in are going down. We are already actually coming up. This is the story of Christianity. Let's pray together. Jesus, Lord, we confess that we have been so proud in our relationships with friends, enemies. Humility is often the furthest thing from our lives. And yet, Lord, you invite us to a different way. And the table of communion reminds us of the story of our salvation, that it was humble love that saved us. As we come to the table now, may your life through these elements shape and form us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. I want to invite those who are going to come to the table to come around. The ushers will lead you in a moment. I want to say this before we come to the table. Our lives are marked by humility. Not when we are focusing on being humble. We become humble when our eyes focus on Jesus. If you think that I got to focus on my own humility, you'll never get it because it'll always lead to pride. But if you're, if you're beholding Jesus and letting Jesus' love so define you and his life so form you, as we behold him, Humility is formed in us. But every time you look to humility, you'll find yourself in pride. We come to the table to behold Jesus, to take bread, to dip it in a cup, to be reminded of his humble love for us. And so in a moment, you'll come forward and you'll take bread and you'll hear the words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Humble love that our King, our Lord, will die as a slave and yet come into newness of life, being exalted by the Father. Take the bread, dip it in the cup, go back to your seat and just hold on to the Lord. and Hold on to all the things that I've said today, asking God to identify what, where is the Lord speaking to you? And then I'll come back up and I'll lead us to receive it together. Before we do that, let's pray this prayer of confession and then our ushers will lead you forward together. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and our neighbor through our own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Please come forward. Set me on fire. He 
I invite you to close your eyes for a moment as we want to look in the face of Jesus, beholding his love, the one who washes our feet, the one who dies in our place, the one who longs to free us and raise us up into newness of life. The Apostle Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. As the people of God, freely forgiven by the humble love of Jesus Christ. Let's all receive together.
Amen. As we close our service, I want to invite our prayer team to come to my left. The scandal of Christianity is that God reveals himself to be a servant, the one who washes our feet. So scandalous to the world, the one who dies for us. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking as I was preaching. You're probably thinking, but Pastor Rich, you don't know who I'm married to. (laughs) Pastor Rich, you don't know where I work. Pastor Rich, you don't know the neighborhood I live in. And I say all that to say that, yes, this is hard, painful work. And yet, with God, all things are possible. Humility comes when we look to Jesus Christ, not to ourselves and our own humility. And when our eyes are fixed on him, the Holy Spirit has a way of shaping us and forming us. Our prayer team is here for whatever needs you have. We want to pray for you. If you're having a difficult season, troubles in your home, troubles at work, just troubles in your body, your state of mind, we want to pray for you for whatever needs you have. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to follow him, to say yes to his humble love, to let his love and forgiveness free you, save you, rescue you. And so our prayer team will be here to pray as long as we need. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. And may that declaration be yours this week there is nothing beneath me there is no one beneath me with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving brothers and sisters sons and daughters of the living God may the Lord bless you and keep you make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace and may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit being marked by the humble love of Jesus Christ May the Holy Spirit shape you and form you in the way of Jesus to confess there is nothing beneath me. There is no one beneath me. And may through your life, people encounter the risen Jesus who is alive and active. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the humble name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace to you all.